So hopefully you've already experienced a little bit of what we're going to read about in our scripture lesson this morning. It's from the book of Philippians chapter 4. We've been working our way through this book as a tool to help us recognize the call to grow the good. And I'd like you to read one more section with me from Philippians chapter 4. So if you've got your phone, open it up, or your Bible that you brought, or there could be a Bible in the chair that you can grab. Uh, Philippians is toward the end of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, these little letters from Paul. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's Word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So I came across an article recently in Psychology Today, and the title of this caught my attention. The title was, Why Has America Become So Divided? Good question. Would you like to know what they said? Why America has become so divided? They actually did not answer the question in the article, which was very frustrating to me. They just talked about the, the ways that it is divided. Here's the opening paragraph from that article. It said this. For many of us these days, it feels as if the United States has never been less united. The nation, it seems, has become irrevocably fractured along political and ideological lines. Sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner with family has never been more uncomfortable, and the admonition to avoid discussing religion or politics in polite company has never been more apropos. So consider this your public service warning for Thanksgiving next week, not to bring up politics or religion at your Thanksgiving dinner. But since we have gathered here for worship this morning, I thought it might be okay if we brought up religion here. And uh, I have a question for you. My question is this. How do non-Christians today usually describe Christians? How do non-Christians often describe Christians? is the first description that comes to mind usually something like this. Oh, what a joyous bunch that is. Is that the description they usually have? No, no, I went and read some blogs and some news feeds and different things. Here's the words that came out, stood out to me as being repeated over and over when they were judging Christians. They said, negative and judgmental, abusive, bigoted, haters, smug and self-righteous, radical extremists. Does that sound like a good description of us? One student of the media and stereotypes actually wrote this. He said, Christians are weirdos. At least if you read the daily news, that's the message you'll get. So there's this idea out there, apparently, and many people develop their viewpoints of Christians from daily news feeds, and it reinforces this idea that Christians are negative, they're radical extremists, and they're just waiting to exert this on somebody else. Their beliefs and behaviors are presented as dramatic and unusual and excessive, and it's almost always in a negative context. So this is kind of that stereotype or the bias that's out there. This isn't news to you, is it? Maybe many of you have noticed this. And, of course, this isn't new either. I mean, sometimes I think we're tempted. I was in a discussion a couple weeks ago, like, it's never been worse 
I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Dr. Stout, who is a history professor from Yale, points out that this started with the Puritans, and they were misrepresented, and still to this day, oftentimes, Puritans, there's a stereotype that's um, represented, and this is how he describes that. He says, most Americans pictured the Puritans as people who had no humor and no compassion. In their minds, the Puritans sat in self-righteous judgment of the rest of the world, and that is why nobody today wants to be called puritanical. That's a bad description. It means you're mean-spirited and harsh and cynical and joyless. So this has been a long-term vision of the world of Christians. Harsh, mean, joyless, mean-spirited. Contrast that with this description. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, the Bible is full of this invitation to rejoice, and we are often called to make this joy obvious to people so that they'll recognize who we are by our joy, by our gratitude, by our rejoicing. Nowhere in the Scriptures have I found a command that says, Thou shalt be crabby to other people. Make your harshness evident to all. This is not in the Bible. So I couldn't help but wonder as I was putting all these pieces together and thinking about this passage in Philippians 4, if we're not faced with a huge opportunity. And the opportunity is this. What if we could actually surprise the world with our joy? They're, they're, they're expecting harshness and mean-spirited, cynical, angry people. What if we could just blow their socks off with rejoicing? Wouldn't that be amazing? So I thought today I would give three things that I think might help surprise people with joy. Three suggestions. Okay, the first one is this. Resist polarization. Okay, this divisive, polarized spirit that's in our community actually destroys relationships. It destroys intimacy. It destroys community. Polarization leads to separation. It leads to drawing lines. It leads to erecting walls. It leads to boundaries. It leads to barriers. It draws a line that says some people are in and some people are out. That's what happens when you are polarized, when you're divisive. Some people are cool, hip, right? Some people are out. They're wrong. Now, if you want a really good example of this, I'm guessing if any of you watched CNN or Fox News this week, you saw a little bit of taste of this. I only get to watch this while I'm running on the treadmill in the morning, and it actually probably gets me worked up so I run faster. <laughs> there is an example of people who are not resisting polarization. It's all about drawing lines and creating barriers. Okay, that's kind of the state of our political uh, situation and the state of our media today, unfortunately. It results in people feeling threatened and people feeling excluded, people feeling offended, and people feeling accused. Compare that to these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your, ev let your gentleness be evidence to all. We resist polarization by finding common ground, by building bridges, by caring deeply. If we want to surprise somebody in the middle of a debate, in the middle of an argument, agree with them. 
Find something that you agree with in the middle of a heated debate. I wonder if this is what Solomon, who happened to be the wisest guy who ever lived, was thinking when he wrote this famous proverb. He says, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one who is patient calms a quarrel. That seems to be an image of someone who's willing to like resist polarization, build a bridge, find common ground, remain patient. Paul told his beloved friends in Philippi when he was writing to them, I long for you with the affection of Christ. And then he writes in a way that demonstrates his deep abiding affection for these people. And I can't help but if anybody in Philippi was a little bit put off by Paul, after you read his opening statement, you go, man, I love that guy. I'm willing to build some bridges with him. I'm not going to put up a wall. I'm not going to build more divisiveness. 1 John 3, 18. These, these commandments and these invitations are all over Scripture. 1 John three eighteen. Dear children, let us not love with words and speech only, but with actions and with truth. It's an invitation to build a bridge to love in a way that's very dramatic. Paul gave this advice to young Timothy, one of his traveling companions. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Well, that'd be a great prescription for surprise, wouldn't it? Somebody that's maybe on the other side of an issue from us, and we go, well, at least one thing I know I can do, I can be kind to you. I can build a bridge. Polarization makes the other person an enemy. Resisting polarization says, I'm going to make the other person a friend. Doing this in our current cultural climate would definitely be surprising, wouldn't it? To say, I'm not going to try to find how many ways we're different. I'm going to try to find how many ways we're the same. Maybe another way to say this is, Division, no. Connection, yes. Can I build a bridge that has connection? So I had lunch with a pastor from another church this week, and um, one of the things that we were talking about in there was how we build bridges between churches. And I think just the fact that we were having this lunch was bridge building because we are sending the message that, you know, I'm not in competition with this other church. I'm not in competition with this other pastor. We're in ministry together. And this was the whole tone of our conversation. It was really delightful. And he talked about one of the things that he'd been thinking about lately, hearing from his own congregation, kind of a growing, oh, divide, maybe distrust of the Catholic Church in our community. And then he realized he didn't know a single Catholic priest. And so what he did this summer was he made a point of reaching out and connecting some with some priests, and they were actually inviting some people to a prayer meeting. Not just the Catholics, but everybody in that part of town. So he went, and he found out that it was a delightful thing. It was build bridge. Instead of continuing to polarize, be divisive, to make a barrier, he's saying, we're going to do something together, and they started by just praying together. And since then, he says, we've had lots of conversations, and uh, one of the most surprising things he said to me was this. He said, it's been a lot of fun. So I don't I've got to confess to you, I don't usually think of spending time with priests as fun, but I probably need to try it if I'm going to resist polarization and build a bridge. This is a step, I think, towards surprising joy. If the world saw the church 
building bridges and resisting polarization, I think they go, wow, that, um, that has my attention. Second step, embrace the mess. So there's something very interesting about the biblical call to rejoice, and one thing that makes me rejoice is when the children's sermon nails it and actually gives the whole sermon. So this is the children's sermon redo right now. So the invitation in Scripture to rejoice is not just a call to be happy, because happiness is a very different thing. Happiness has so much to do with circumstances. So when things are going well, when my life is good, when I feel good, when all these things are falling in place in my life, I go, gosh, I feel happy today. But joy and rejoicing in the way Scripture talks about it is something that's much deeper than that. It actually transcends the circumstances, which means it transcends whatever feeling I happen to have in the moment. Joy is a much deeper thing than that. We've already noted several times that when Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison, okay? Things are not good for him right now. In fact, his life is hanging in the balance as he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be freed or if he's going to be executed. He could go out and preach the gospel again or he could be martyred. These are the things that are hanging in the balance. And yet, in this little letter of Philippians, he talks about joy and rejoicing 14 times. It comes up more often in this short letter than any other letter. So he's in this really difficult circumstance, a circumstance that might lead to despair and discouragement, and yet he goes, underneath all of that, there's rejoicing. There is joy. It's not dependent on his circumstances. Happiness needs good circumstances. Joy does not. Joy comes in spite of the circumstances. It's possible to rejoice when we are troubled. It's possible to rejoice when we're in a valley, not just on a mountaintop. These are all parts of what it means to rejoice. And Paul, and in fact the whole Bible, admits that we should acknowledge the messiness of the world, that there is brokenness, that there is pain, that there's difficulties, there's hard times and good times. But even in the bad times, we still have joy, something that's undergirding all of this. Um, a theologian named Karl Barth once called this kind of joy a continual, defiant, nevertheless. So you're looking at a circumstance that might be less than ideal, less than purpose, less than happy for you, and you go, nevertheless, I still trust God. I still trust that God is at work in this. I trust that God's promise is true, that God who says that I can even work through the bad things in your life to bring about good. Continual defiant nevertheless. The prophets wrote about this a lot. Many of the prophets have this message. Their, their, their message is terrible. It's dismal. It's discouraging. Nevertheless, they say, don't lose sight of God and His promise. Don't lose hope, they say. Uh, I was just thinking about Zephaniah this week. And he's a really great example. If you read through the book of Zephaniah, the first couple chapters are terrible. I mean, it, they're filled with anger and they're filled with fear and judgment. Um, God's people are under attack. They're being threatened from every direction. They're being threatened from the north and from the east and from the south. And, I mean, they're really caught between the pinchers of the Egyptian nation and the Babylonian nation that's coming ever closer and threatening to wipe them out and taking them into exile. The northern kingdom's already been destroyed. So things are really bad. And you read through these 
verse after verse after verse of this terrible news, and then the mood shifts, and we read this. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Do not fear. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. I think that's one of the most beautiful verses, Zephaniah 3.14. I think that's a beautiful verse, a picture of God rejoicing over his people with singing so they can sing even in the middle of their mess. They can rejoice. When we resist polarization and embrace the mess, then I think it leads to the third thing we can do, which is we can celebrate Jesus, which has been maybe the most obvious thing um, in addition to the joy throughout this book of Philippians has been Paul's celebration of Christ. I mean, he just keeps coming back to Christ as is his classic move. Paul found that the source of joy will never fail because he has life with the risen Christ. The Christ who's already experienced the absolute worst of human conditions. So we admit that life could be hard, but for Paul, no circumstance, no hardship could ever overcome the joy of life with Jesus. Whether he lived or died, whether people showered him with affection or abuse, whether he was hungry or well-fed, whether he was free or in chains, Paul rejoiced because he knew that he had life in Christ. A continual defiant nevertheless, unflappable peace and serenity in the middle of his crisis, lasting joy that comes from Christ, not from the circumstances. Now, I suppose that everyone worries, even Paul, but instead of letting that worry destroy his life in the middle of this mess, he prays with gratitude, with thanksgiving. He trusts that he is still in God's hands. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See the source of that joy? It's in Christ. And no circumstance ever changes that. I was listening to the radio driving in this morning, and I heard an ad for something that was going to be playing at Hancher Auditorium in Iowa City, and I didn't hear the title of the piece that was being advertised, but I heard the... um, Subtitle, and it, it caught my idea. The subtitle of this is, said was uh, Joy as the Ultimate Resistance. I really like that. Joy as the Ultimate Resistance. And as soon as I heard that announcer on the radio say that, I started to think about Paul sitting in that Philippian jail. He's been arrested, beaten, he's in chains. What is he doing? He's singing. He's singing. How can he sing in that circumstance? 
because he knows that his life is not dependent on circumstances. His life is not dependent on an emotional response in the moment. His life is dependent on this deep-seated faith and trust that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can imagine that Paul was singing. Maybe he was singing the song that comes out of chapter 2 of Philippians about the Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, because he became obedient to that death, he's going to be exalted above the name that is above every other name so that every tongue in heaven and every knee will bow. Maybe that's the song Paul's singing. Or maybe he's singing a song that comes out of the book of Hebrews about Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He's singing something, and I can tell you that the content of Paul's song while he's sitting there in prison, locked up, is about Christ. He's singing about Christ. Do you think it would surprise the world if we were the kind of people who, no matter what circumstance came, no matter what trouble, no matter what hardship, we resisted polarization and we started to build bridges? If we were the kind of people who said, well, we're not going to ignore the mess around us. We're going to embrace and recognize the mess. But no matter what mess comes upon us, we're going to celebrate that Jesus Christ is the answer. And we're going to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we live like that, the world would be surprised. Lord God, we come before you today, and I want to give you thanks for your truth. Thank you for speaking to us through your word today, and we thank you, God, for this amazing gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that in the midst of life's challenges and difficulties, we would never lose sight of Him, that our faith would be built upon that rock-solid foundation of life in Jesus. God, I thank You for these good people here today, for their willingness to sit and to consider Your teaching and these truths and how they might apply to their life. I want to pray, God, for someone who might be sitting in this room right now who's facing a great hardship. God, they have faced challenges and difficulties. Their life is a mess, and they have been despairing. I pray, God, that even now you would cause to well up within them a joy that transcends their circumstances, a joy that is dependent on you and faith in you and trusting in you to continue to care, to continue to hold them, to continue to draw them near. God, help us all to grow in that. God, I pray for some who might be dealing with that struggle of health, not feeling well, facing surgeries, dealing with sickness, cancer. God, come near to them. Give them joy. God, if there's any here who are dealing with broken relationships, the need to reconcile, brokenness in marriages, brokenness in families, between parents and children, between friends and neighbors, God, would you come near to them in the midst of that mess? Help them to trust in you to hold them and carry them and support them in this time. God, if there's others who are facing challenges due to their economic situation, whether they're in the wrong job or looking for work or trying to find work, God, meet them as well. Provide for them. God, we thank you for the way that you provided for our church. We feel blessed. I, I feel so blessed to be part of a congregation that is generous 
Thank you for the outpouring of gifts that are being offered up for your ministry. And I pray that you'll help us, God, as a church to be wise and faithful stewards of all the gifts that we receive, that you'll show us how you want us to use those gifts to continue to build your kingdom, that you'll take us into places in this world and in our neighborhood that are in great need of the gospel, that we'll be able to proclaim the gospel clearly, that it will fall on open hearts, hearts that are like good soil ready to receive your word, and that we'll see fruit from that. God, I thank you. You are an amazing God, awesome in your power, your greatness, almighty. And you are a God who cares. You watch over each one of us. Uh, Not even a hair can fall from our head without you noticing. I thank you that you're that kind of great, powerful God who yet watches us with such tender and intimate love. So we praise you for that. We thank you. Thanks for meeting us here. Continue to guide us. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.